When it comes to the objects out there in the universe, planets, stars, galaxies, and even larger scale structures in the universe, you might think of astronomy and astrophysics as this game we play to try and figure it all out. Observers take their telescopes and instruments and gather information about the universe. Once that information's been collected, we have a whole slew of scientists. Some of them are observers, some are theorists, some are data analysts who go ahead and take that data and try and extract as much information about the universe as we can. And then we present it, we argue over what it means, we try to put it into context of the full suite of what we know, all in the effort to make sense of our universe. However, one of the things that we rarely focus on is that it isn't as simple as just say, hey, observer, go observe this thing. There's a whole ton of research and support that needs to happen in order to take us from I have a target and I have equipment to actually having useful observations. So nuts and bolts wise, how do we go from the idea of an observation we'd like to make to actually having a high quality set of data in our hands? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. We have cutting-edge telescopes all over the world that examine the universe, that take data about it, and that deliver it to all of the various stakeholders who need access to it. But each instrument and each telescope that has a variety of instruments has its own unique challenges and knowledge sets that anyone operating it needs to have right at their disposal. It's far too much for any one observer to do on their own, and that's why we have teams of people who are specialized in enabling these telescopes to do the great science they're capable of doing. And here to take us through a little bit of how this is done and why this is so important, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Heather Fluelling to the show. Heather has worked on a wide variety of projects over the years, including pan stars up on the summit of Maui. She currently works at the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, where she is an instrument support scientist who has worked with a wide variety of instruments, including Megaprime and Megacam. And Heather, I'm so pleased to have you here. I look forward to learning so much about this. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here today. So Heather, you are you are off in Hawaii, and as as dreamlike and wonderful as that sounds, um, most of the time you spend at work, uh, it's not like you get to lie out on the beach and watch a volcano explode in the background. You are typically uh, mired in. I I've seen some of the hardware that you work on and I walk in there and it reminds me of these particle physics experiments I used to be a part of where 
everything is connected by loose cables held together with zip ties. You can find plate weights just attached to random things to sort of balance them out a little bit better. Uh, compared to these pristine dome-like images we see um, on the internet or, you know, as PR photos, the actual inside of where you work, it feels like a secret inside of a disaster movie in a way that I wouldn't have imagined if I hadn't seen it for myself. Okay, I haven't heard telescopes uh, described that way on the inside, but I, I can see what you mean. There's definitely a lot of loose cables and all kinds of things attached to telescopes you wouldn't expect. Um, one thing that's worth noting, Pretty much every telescope I've worked on has all been like custom built designed by scientists and engineers. Each telescope is completely unique and there's not a whole lot of just off the shelf parts that you can buy just to make a telescope work. They have to put a lot of effort in machining the various different uh, instruments and parts. And so, yeah, I guess it will look a bit like um, a mad scientist kind of experiment, but uh, they're very specialized machines, these telescopes, and they, they do an awesome job of capturing the cosmos. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't think our readers or listeners necessarily are going to appreciate why that is. You know, if you want to buy even a, a large amateur telescope, something that's like 18 inches or even 24 inches in diameter, these are things that for intents and purposes are are mass produced. But when you're talking about like the cutting edge telescopes that we use to collect most of the scientific data that we have, each one is kind of its own custom-built uh, entity, isn't it? There's no two telescopes, or certainly there aren't like five or six telescopes that are just direct copies of one another where you can like have a little factory going to crank out the parts, is it? Uh, there's not really a factory, no. So there can be very similar designs. So Panstars 1 and Panstars 2 are very similar in design, but... Um, when they were constructed, there's, there's slight differences just because they were made at different times and each part is special ordered and special made specific to that telescope and things change over the years. Other uh, telescopes I've worked with uh, that are about 18 inches is the ROTC telescopes, the Robotic Optical Transient Search Experiment. That's 18 inches and there were four of them. And um, while they're supposed to be very similar to each other, there are going to be small differences between uh, the telescopes. And the same with uh, other small groupings of telescopes that they try to make copies of. It's, it's really hard to just have complete duplicates. In addition to, if you build a telescope like in the US, you use 120 volts versus if you build it somewhere in Europe, you might use 240 volts. And so even just the considerations of the electronics, how do you make one work for 120 versus 240? They're not going to be identical, but they will be very similar. Do you also have to worry about things that, you know, at first approximation, you would say like, oh, it's the same everywhere on Earth. But when you get into it and you need to be as precise as our telescopes need to be, do you have to worry, for example, that um, 
uh, a telescope in the Canary Islands versus a telescope at the summit of Mauna Kea versus a telescope in the Atacama Desert, do you need to worry that the gravitational field of Earth is slightly different? Do you need to worry that the angular velocity of Earth's rotation is slightly different at those particular locations? Do you need to worry that... Um, you know, all of these things that we sort of think of as like, oh, yeah, Earth is a sphere and it spins around once a day. That's a good enough approximation for a lot of what we do. But I know when we talk about these big telescopes, especially if you start talking about the segmented ones across multiple mirrors, um, you need to have that whole surface across mirrors act as though it's uniform to the shape you want it to within about 25 nanometers or so. And I, I can't even imagine taking something that's massive, that's meters in diameter, and having to get the shape down so perfectly smooth with everything that happens, atmospheric disturbances, changes in the air, changes in humidity, and the gravitational field of the Earth, among other things, to get down to such a narrow, perfect tolerance. Like, I can't imagine the challenges that go into keeping the equipment just perfectly steady and stable in that regard. So you are right. Uh, those are very challenging. Um, what I've experienced with the smaller telescopes and also with the Panstars telescopes is um, how the mirror is shaped is definitely, it's very hard to get the mirror to be exactly the same for two telescopes. You can get it close. And there are things you can do uh, with the image processing to try to mitigate some of the issues, or you can add little corrector cells in order to, to mitigate inaccuracies in how the mirror is shaped. Uh, the other thing is with the CCD cameras, people just take for granted like a camera on your phone. It's just perfect. It takes perfect pictures. These are very precise, very delicate instruments. They often have to be cooled to a very low temperature, and there's often all sorts of artifacts and other things that need to be uh, accommodated for or adjusted. And no two cameras are the same. No two mirrors are the same. Those are like the big things that I see with telescopes. It's not so much um, angular velocity or gravitational pull or anything like that. It's it's more just the shape of the mirror and the alignment of the optics to make it as perfect as possible. And the camera itself of how good or bad the CCD is. And especially if you have an array of CCDs, some chips will be better than others. and you still want to use those chips because they're still good. They still give you good quality images, but uh, you have to be very careful with the processing to make sure you, you account for all of that. Now that that sounds like two major challenges, and so uh, let's let's pick one to talk about first. When uh, when I first met you, you were working uh, for PanStars, and PanStars is this wonderful survey. It's a pretty small telescope, all things told. Like, it, it's a big telescope, but it's not like a 10-meter big telescope. It's more like a 1-meter big telescope. Um, and when it looks at the sky, PanStars, the huge benefit of it is it is wide field and it is fast. So when PanStars looks up at the sky, 
it takes an enormous chunk of the sky. It gets data from it all at once. It can go pretty faint. It can't go as faint as like Hubble can go, but it can go pretty faint. But PanStar's big benefit is that it's rapid. It has all these different sets of wavelengths of light. It could look in, it can take a picture of the sky fairly deeply, relatively quickly, and it can do this over and over so that over the course of maybe a week, you can image, I think PanStars can image about three quarters of the entire sky from its location uh, on Hawaii. And I think it can do it, what is it, two or three full times? It could get that full three quarters of the sky uh, in its entirety every week if your seeing conditions are good. And that that's a lot, a lot of information. Um, I can only imagine what sort of monstrosity of a camera or a CCD you need in order to collect and handle all of that data coming in so fast. Yes, uh, PanStars has a large volume of data and a very unique and very large camera specific for this. Um, and you're right, it's not a big telescope. It's a survey telescope. And it has, because of the very large field of view of the camera, it's able to take snapshots of the sky in such a way that over the course of the survey, we covered um, each filter. There's five filters about at least four times, I think, for each filter over the course of several years. And you're right, three quarters of the sky. You can't actually see three, uh, three quarters of the sky like on a given night because of the position of the sun. But over the course of a year, you do cover three quarters of the sky. Wow. So when we're talking about this, you know, you mentioned that you're going to have different pixel sensitivities in your sen sensors. You're going to have like some regions are better than others. It's all useful data. But how do you deal with that knowing that you have this enormous camera, you have this very powerful wide field survey telescope, and that some parts of the image, of each image that you take, some parts of the image are going to have better data than other parts of the image just because your CCD or your camera is not uniform in all different locations. Like what, how do you even approach reckoning with that type of a problem? So that is a very good question and there's a couple parts to it. First of all, um, so that our readers know, or our listeners, I guess, um, this is at the time when this camera was built, it was the world's largest astronomy camera. It was 1.4 gigapixels. So your camera on your phone, that might be 10 megapixels. So imagine something like, you know, an order of magnitude or two bigger than that. So for every image you take, 1.4 gigapixels, that is a lot of data. At the time, I had trouble even opening those images on my laptop. It was too big of a volume of data for me. I didn't have enough memory even to view them. I mean, How that, we... that's crazy. I remember being blown away that when Hubble upgraded its camera, right, when it had the servicing mission done and we installed the advanced camera for surveys and the wide field three camera on it, that was state of the art, eight 
megapixel camera. That's an 8 megapixel camera. You're talking about a 1.4 gigapixel camera. That's about 200 times as many pixels on this survey telescope's camera as there are on the most powerful camera currently on Hubble right now. Yes, but our camera is not mounted in space, so we have to deal with the atmosphere, and our mirror isn't very large compared to other telescopes, so we don't see things nearly as faint as Hubble. We're not even trying. Um, a couple of other things worth mentioning about this camera. It is about the size of a large pizza when you assemble the full array of 60 chips. It is rather large. And the field of view, I've talked about it being large as well. It is roughly seven square degrees, roughly about about like three degrees on a side, but it's, it's not perfectly square. It has the corners chopped out. The moon, for reference, is half a square degree across. So this thing can image the moon many multiples of times if the moon wasn't so bright it covers a large area of sky. So that is thousands and millions of stars and objects in each image. You know, and this is, this strikes me as this is often the trade-off in astronomy. If you want to discover something amazing about the universe, you have two ways to do it. One is you can go and grab a wide, wide section of the universe. You can grab a huge amount of area on the sky so that you have lots of different candidates to look at, lots of different space to look at, objects to examine, etc. But the other way is to go deeper, is to look uh, well beyond the limits to fainter, fainter objects, to more distant objects. And, and that is another way to pick out some of these rare cosmic objects. Pan stars isn't exactly a slouch when it comes to going deep into the universe, but it's a good, you know, few thousand times less capable of getting the faintest objects compared to Hubble. But when you said angular size, right, when you say it's about seven square degrees, that's seven square degrees is about its field of view, right? Yes. Okay. Now, you compare that to something like Hubble, and Hubble is about uh, one, uh, I want to say it's about one ten thousandth of a square degree for its full widest field view image. So if you're saying, okay, we've got one ten thousandth of a degree from Hubble and it goes fainter, but then we have seven square degrees per image from pan stars, uh, there are only about 40,000 square degrees in the sky. I believe if you take a look at, okay, Hubble's been what, around for 31 years? And if you take a look at all cumulatively of all the observations it's ever took, Hubble has covered less than 1% of the sky. If you wanted to say pan stars, um, every image you take is seven square degrees, you can see a total of three quarters of the sky. Um, how long does it take pan stars to take one image of that seven square degrees? So it depends on the filter. We use five different filters, uh, primarily when we were doing the survey. And uh, depending on the, the phase of the moon, 
would help determine which filter we used. But generally, I would say between 45 to 60 seconds per exposure. I mean, that that's crazy to me. That's You're saying less than a minute. Less than a minute. So if I have a an eight-hour observing night, and that's probably pretty conservative, but if I have an eight-hour observing night, then I can get about, oof, I want to say like 4,000 square degrees a night. Is that is that roughly right? Uh, I haven't done that calculation. One thing that I will point out is we tend to take uh, images in sequences of four. And we do that in order to try to find near-Earth objects. So uh, whatever the actual volume we could view, if we were just viewing one point of the sky at a time, you have to divide that by four. That, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you have a large survey telescope, then what you're really going to notice is, okay, if I have any of these objects, any of the objects that appear in one of these images, if they're in our own backyard, if they're in the solar system, then if I image it now versus if I image it a minute later or two minutes later or three minutes later, I could see, if it's moving fast enough, a change in this object's position. And that, I'm not going to say I'm sure it's been, but I would imagine that with telescopes like PanStars doing what they do, that this has to be at the very least one of the most prolific solar system object finders we've ever built. Yes. So PanStars and Catalina are very similar as far as the number of near-Earth objects that they discover every year. Uh, currently, I guess for 2019, I'm, I'm just looking at this plot here, each one was discovering roughly about a thousand new near-Earth objects a year. And that makes up about 90 to 95% of the new near-Earth objects discovered every year. Wow. Wow. That's, that's tremendous. You know, one of the one of the things we've been talking about, uh, not you and me, but the whole astronomy community, is how when it comes to the science of planetary defense, um, grabbing these solar system objects, understanding where they are, what their populations are, what their trajectories are, this is such an important endeavor for us. Because if anything bad is going to come our way, we want to know, and we want as much lead time as possible, and we want to characterize those objects as much as possible. PanStars, which you worked on for years, is in many ways the predecessor to the Nancy Grace Roman Observatory, which was formerly known as LSST. Now, there have been enormous concerns raised by astronomers over the coming and already present swarms of mega constellations in the night sky um, as being a confounding factor for these potential near-Earth objects. Um, I don't know if you got to experience this in your time with PanStars, or if this is something that they're really looking at as a near-future problem rather than a current problem, but what is it about these large numbers of fast-moving satellites that makes it so difficult to locate and characterize these actual astronomical solar system objects that, that they're up against? I'm not sure if you've seen this. Uh, one of the other observatories had a picture showing all the streaks 
from these constellations of st satellites. And it basically kind of effectively ruins an exposure. You have, you know, hundreds of streaks dashing through it. And the streaks are running over stars and other objects that you're trying to observe. I have seen this myself, um, not just with PanStars, but with other telescopes as well. Basically, twilight is about when the sun kind of glints off of these satellites and they cause these extremely bright streaks. And they're brighter than uh, the current software really knows how to handle. They're brighter than, than stars generally. And to have very precise processing set up to find all the stars and objects in an image and then to have like a big giant streak just blowing through it, it makes it very difficult to find objects. And also, you know, the light covers over things you're looking for, as well as it creates a whole bunch of false positives because these streaks are not known. They're not known objects. So it, it does do a lot of damage to uh, exposures. I've seen it mostly during, like, right as the sun is setting or rising. I haven't really seen it or looked too closely, like, during the night, but I, it might affect that as well. So just the presence of these very bright streaks through the images causes a lot of damage to the exposure and makes it very hard to look for a moving object because an NEO, for example, just looks like a star. It's just a star we don't, we haven't seen before. And then you take an image, you know, 30 minutes to an hour later and you see that star has moved. It's hard to find those when your image is clobbered with a bunch of streaks. Oh, I, I can imagine that's got to be a difficult confounding factor. I, I also imagine it has to be difficult when you're looking for other sorts of subtle changes because it's not like, oh, these telescopes like PanStars are only good for finding objects in the solar system. They're also remarkable at finding transient objects, at seeing which objects brighten or dim over time, about seeing which objects... Uh, undergo outbursts or have substantial changes to them. And I imagine that the more and more of these uh, frames that get polluted with these streaks or that even have objects be ruined by these streaks, um, the much more difficult it is to actually do the science and differentiate between, okay, well, what's the signal that we're looking for versus what's just noise? Yes, and I think it's still something we need to work on as scientists to figure out how to mitigate the streaks and figure out how to avoid them because they do cause a lot of false positives and it makes it hard even just to do the astrometry to even tell where you're looking in the sky. Like you can see where the stars are, but the algorithm will pick the streaks and think that those are the stars and it can't find a pattern. So this is definitely a, a problem we need to work on but i think also uh these satellites they need to figure out a way to be less present there are ways of i think there must be ways of painting them so they're less shiny so they're kind of dull so they don't stand out um i think that the people launching these satellites need to work with the astronomers to find like a good compromise astronomers are always going to want everything as dark as possible to get the best sky possible to view things that that's what we want to do but there should be some middle ground between what astronomers are trying to see versus uh, what's getting launched into space so that we can still continue to do our science because it is very important uh, this is like panstars is part of the planetary defense group they are looking for 
near-Earth objects, they are looking for potentially hazardous asteroids. And if we can't see the sky properly, we can't find them. Yeah, I. it's not lost on me that this is, uh, that this is a game where we're really putting ourselves in danger. Um, we're really removing one of the best pieces of infrastructure we've set up to protect us from these objects for early tracking and identification and detection um, that we're just saying like, ah, well, we'll roll the dice instead and just hope nothing bad is coming our way. And that that seems like a real unnecessary risk in this day and age. Now, when you when I look at what you're doing today, um, I know that you are an instrument support scientist for the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, or the CFHT, which is a very different telescope than PanSTARS is. As far as I understand it, uh, in addition to being on a different mountain, it's at the summit of Mauna Kea instead of at Haleakala, which is the summit of Maui. Um, but it also is larger. If I remember, it's more like three and a half or four meters in diameter instead of just a little over one meter in diameter. Um, it tends to be a narrower field um, observatory, so it doesn't grab like seven square degrees at once. Um, but it also does, if I remember right, have another one of those just incredibly high resolution cameras capable of digging into some tremendously high resolution details on these objects that it's imaging. What would you talk about when you talked about how CFHT and PANSTARS are both similar and different. Okay, so Megacam, this is the, the camera that I, I work with, it is older. It's about 18 years old, and it has 40 CCDs instead of the 60 that PANSTARS has, and it has a total of 378 megapixels. PANSTARS had 1.4 gigapixels. And it's a much smaller field of view, but still very wide by today's standards. It's one it's one square degree, basically. So it can hold four moons in it, approximately. So it's still very large. And what CFHT excels at with this uh, Mega Prime Megacam instrument is chasing after, uh, for example, near-Earth objects discovered by PANSTARS. So PANSTARS will discover a whole bunch of near-Earth objects but their orbits are not very well constrained yet. It needs more observations. PANSTARS is not a follow-up telescope. It doesn't chase those objects again. It moves on to the next field. What the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope does, one of many, many projects that they do, is they chase after the near-Earth objects discovered by PANSTARS. And, you know, they have a good estimate of where the position is, or where the object is likely to be. And because it's a wide field of view, one square degree, you don't have to be perfectly exact. Chances are you're going to catch it if it's nearby. And so what they they work with scientists at PANSTARS in order to follow up these observations in order to get better orbits to figure out uh, where these near-Earth objects are orbiting. That's uh that's pretty interesting. So when you are talking about Megacam, I I love anything with the name Mega in it because it's really just gonna like impress you right away. Um, but I think of PanStars as this wide field but still high resolution piece of uh, piece of equipment we have. 
But if I do the math right for Megacam, Megacam has almost double the resolutions. Like if you say, okay, how many uh, pixels do we have to fill every square degree of the sky that we look at, uh, Megacam has almost double the pixel density of pan stars. Um, Is that because of its bigger aperture that it can resolve objects with those extra pixels that are beyond the resolvability limit of pan stars? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think it's a combination of um, the optics, but also uh, the, the camera itself has smaller pixels on Megacam. What does what does pixel size have to do with what you wind up seeing or learning? Well, so for example, if you had um, a field of view of seven square degrees, like pan stars, but you had really big pixels, um, you wouldn't see as much. So, I mean, you could you could just say what maybe make each CCD its own pixel. You'd only have like sixty pixels. You would you would get like the average intensity of that area of sky, but you wouldn't get much resolution. Um, so the pixel size does help as far as um, what you can see with the CFHT. There's a couple of other things. One, it's higher. The air is much more pristine and beautiful and clear and darker. Um, the exposures themselves tend to be a little bit longer. Uh, so the images themselves go quite a bit deeper than the Panstar's images. All of these things, like it's not, CFHD is not a survey telescope. It's following up on things that knows exist from Panstar's for some of its science. And so because of that, you can spend more time on the observations and make it a wider filter to try to find things. That's pretty interesting. So if I didn't know what I was looking for, but I wanted to find, you know, something interesting that was out there, uh, Panstars would be like a gold mine for that, right? I would be able to say like, okay, like here are a bunch of objects out there and most of them I know exist, but I'll, once in a while I'll see something that I don't recognize. And if I see something I don't recognize, that's a very good chance that that's going to be a new object within our solar system or a transient object that has brightened from below the current visibility limit to above it. Um, but that's it. That's what PanStars does. It just sort of looks sort of mindlessly and uh, gathers this data and then dumps it out into the world. And it's got to be that someone, whether it's a computer or a human, uh, goes through that and says, hey, here are some interesting things that we found. Someone should follow up. And CFHT is one of those telescopes that says, okay, now that we've got something that's potentially interesting, now we're going to go in for a closer look and we're going to try and really get to the bottom of whatever it is that's going on here and that means deeper exposures higher resolution more integration time um, and possibly a different set of filters than we were able to observe with pan stars yes and i wouldn't necessarily call uh, pan stars mindlessly observing they very specifically chose the cadence and how they map out the sky just to optimally cover as much sky as accurately as possible with the right cadence to find new objects. And it's not just near-Earth objects. Uh, PanStars is a discovery machine. They find supernova all the time. And uh, for both supernova and for asteroids, having additional information from other telescopes is incredibly helpful, especially with the supernova. 
other telescopes will chase after it and get spectra on those uh, supernova to like identify them. Uh, so this this is the great thing with PANSARS. It's great at discovering things. However, it's only discovering things. You have to follow it up with other telescopes. And that's also what happened with the Oumuamua object. PANSARS discovered it. And then telescopes around the world followed it up before it left the solar system. You know, that that is such an interesting object. But I think what might be a fantastic thing to highlight is, Heather, at any given time, how many PANSTARS scientists are there working on the telescope, maintaining it, getting the data out to people. Like if you include all of the full-time PANSTARS employees, how many of them are there? I'm not quite sure. So first of all, full disclosure, I haven't worked for PANSTARS for about three years now. But um, when I was there, there was the support staff that kept the telescope running. I don't know how many people that is. I'm not even going to guess. Um, then there was the observers, and that's usually about four or five different observers that cycle through managing the observations every night. Because even though like the observations are all planned out in advance, you still need an operator there to make sure the telescope is avoiding clouds and things like that. So we, we do have observers managing the telescope. And then the uh, image processing pipeline, that was the group I was in, it had about five people in it. and it took about five people, five scientists to manage the data products, to process the data, to get out the data pretty much within minutes. So if an observation is taken on the PANSTAR summit, it gets transferred and downloaded to the cluster of computers at the University of Hawaii. From there, it is automatically processed and then sent to uh, the, the people looking for either supernova or asteroids or other things. This was all done in real time. Basically, when you would wake up every morning, the nightly processing was already done because it was done in real time. It just astounds me that you are talking about like, okay, like there are probably three classes of people who work on this telescope dedicated to it. And uh, from two of those three classes... We had about 10 people doing this for the entire telescope. Uh, is that a typical number of people to have working on like a large telescope? Like if someone was saying like, hey, how many, by the way, do we have working on like the Keck telescope? Or how many do we have working on uh, the James Webb Space Telescope? Um, you're going to be looking at much, much larger numbers there than you are for something like PANSTARS, aren't you? Yes. So I've never worked for those projects, so I don't really know how many people are involved. But the impression I've always gotten is that PANSTARS is a pretty lean set of people. You're pretty dedicated. You're just primarily working on PANSTARS. And other small telescopes I've worked on, it's it's similar. It's it's a pretty lean group of people. It's It's not like some of the other bigger telescopes it it's much smaller group of people for sure and let me ask you from a from a personal point of view is it nice to work in an environment like that or is it 
I would I would worry like wow if I had a great set of colleagues and this was a great working environment we could really thrive as like a dream team but I can also imagine man if it just took like one or two people who uh I would say didn't behave in a professional, high quality, kind manner, uh, they could easily turn an environment like that into just a nightmare for everyone. Okay, that's a good question. Um, And I would say I don't really have too many experiences. So as a grad student, I worked in a very small, close-knit group of people working on these robotic telescopes. And then I jumped immediately to PanStars. And from my perspective, working in the image processing pipeline was, again, a small, close-knit group of people. And my colleagues there, some of them are like my best friends ever. We hang out together. We go for hikes together. We do fun things in Hawaii together. And, yeah, there's going to be personality conflicts. Um, I don't don't know. I just, for the longest time, I kind of thought that who you work with is who you should be friends with. So... um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have many other experiences to uh, differentiate. All right. Since uh, over the last few years, I know you've moved to and you work now for uh, the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, which is a different telescope on a different island. Um, and like you said, a somewhat larger team than uh, PanStars had. Uh, but I imagine that You know, when you're talking about I'm doing follow-up observations here, I'm choosing targets, I'm honing in on them, I'm doing longer exposure times, I'm I'm trying to extract particular sets of information, Um, I imagine that's, you know, a, how would I put this, you're enabling a different set of science with the work that you're doing how different is that as a work environment from working on a on a sort of automated all sky or automated three-quarter sky survey like pan stars right that's a good question and um, i have a lot of comments about that uh first of all um, i started this job in the pandemic so um that, that's an interesting way to start a job. Um, at the time that I started the job, we were remote only. They, it was encouraged in the state of Hawaii, if you can work from home, you should work from home. So I did. So that's a thing that's still kind of hard for me is um, I don't have the same kind of social interactions that I did at my previous jobs. Other than that, it's been great. Like, it's it's an amazing job. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and doing the processing is a lot of fun. It is quite a bit different. The one thing that is the same, though, is the software. Uh, the person who wrote the Megacam pipeline, one of the people, is my former boss from PanStars. Uh, Eugene Manier wrote Elixir with another person, and when he moved to PanStars, copied quite a large chunk of it over there. So I was very familiar with the software from the start, which was quite beneficial for CFHT because they were looking for someone who, who knew how to process large imagers like Megacam. And to have someone who not only knew that, but knew the software and the intricacies involved, like I just knew it, that that was great for them. Um, as far as day-to-day, it's a little different because PanStars is a survey telescope so every night you're taking images with this 1.4 gigapixel imager every single night that you can with 
Canada France Hawaii telescope, it's a little bit different. There's five instruments that they cycle through and uh, mega cam mega prime is only like one of those five instruments. And so there's like, you know, about a week or so a week to 10 days of the month where we focus just on mega cam images and similar to uh, pan stars, they have what they call quick look processing. So as the data is taken, it's processed and given directly to the observer or to the PIs that are interested in it. And that's another thing is Canada Francois not a survey telescope. They have, uh, they get proposals from people from University of Hawaii, from Canada and from France. And so there's all kinds of different areas of astronomy that is served by this telescope. And it's not as simple as we're always going to take like 45 to 60 second exposures of the sky and various filters. They have, you know, different sorts of observing campaigns to observe someone's object in the sky. And it, each one is different. The one I'm most familiar with for obvious reasons from PanStars is the near earth objects, but you have people staring at Andromeda and other galaxies and looking for FRBs and other things like that. So uh, there's a whole lot of like a variety of science and just a whole bunch of different sorts of observations that happen. But the nightly processing, the quick look happens every night. By the time you wake up, that should be done. But then after the end of a mega camera run, then we do very careful calibrations and we make new flats and fringes and biases and make, we reprocess the data and make the most perfect processed uh, exposures possible for the scientists. So um, it's a lot more hands-on compared to the turn the crank with uh, PanStars, but uh, a lot more precise, I think. I mean, that that's pretty cool. It really sounds like, you know, with CFHT, you are much more of a, uh, of an all-purpose or adaptable, um, you know, observatory where if you're saying like, okay, like we want to study this extragalactic object, we want to study this near earth object, we want to study this exotic star or star cluster, we want to study this uh, weird thing that we found in the depths of deep space. This, you might use different instruments for it and you might take different observing strategies for it, but this same telescope can handle all of it. And that's got to be... Uh, sort of an interesting challenge is to say like, hey, like we're going to be doing this wide variety of things and we want to make sure whichever observation we're taking at the time that the telescope is optimized to get the greatest amount of useful data for this object. Yes, and that's actually uh, something that um, all of us scientists do at CFHT is we uh, trade off, we have a schedule of Q coordinators. So when you're the Q coordinator, you have the list of the scientists and the observations that they want to take because the scientists don't just ask for a night of observing. They say, I need three hours to observe this object in this part of the sky with these filters and these exposures. And it's your job as the Q coordinator to set the schedule for the night so that the observers can follow the, the schedule. So that's, um, you have a lot of power in, in determining the exact order of how things get observed and it's it's kind of tricky that's something i'm still working on but it it has like you know there's rankings for the different programs so you know which ones are more important and there's also the possibility some of them have like target of opportunity so that means like if someone 
find like if there's some Lego event and they want to try to see something, they have priority. Or also, there's director's time. The director can uh, if there's something really truly interesting, like Omuomua, the director can give some of the time and just jump on it. And so it's quite different from CFH or from Panstars. CFHT is used by quite a few grad students. They use this telescope for their thesis data. PANSTARS, not so much. The, the grad students who use it for their thesis data, they have to find a clever way to use the survey data for their thesis. They're not applying for and asking for telescope time. Now, one of the things that's always struck me, and I suppose that people who don't spend as much time staring at astronomy images as I do uh, will notice this, but CFHT is a little bit unique. If I take a look at an image of like a star cluster um, or a group of stars, I can identify immediately if it's a CFHT image from the way that the stars look when they are shown in a CFHT image. For some reason, uh, they don't have like the spikes the way Hubble does. They have uh, like these uh, halos, and I think the bluer the star is, the bigger the halo gets. And I was curious if, number one, if that's something that you and other people have noticed, or if this is just made up in Ethan's head. Uh, but the other is, if that is a real thing, like, why is this? Why? Do the CFHT images look so different from all the other telescopes that take images of similar objects in the sky? Um, those are good questions. Not just Ethan made this up. So <laughs> I, I have also noticed the halos. And specifically, and you might not have noticed this, but I have. If you look for a really, really narrow filter, like H-alpha, then the halos you can you can see ringing in them. So I think that's just I think that's just evidence of just how good our camera is that we're seeing like the the ringing like the conditions up at the summit of Mauna Kea are just spectacular. You get beautiful images up there. As for uh, why you don't get the the spikes, I'm not quite sure. I think that has to do with um, it depends. Um, like if you see like bars across the telescope that can cause those spikes. There's other things that can cause those spikes. I haven't really paid too much attention. I have seen in the CFHT images, you do get them. A lot of times um, for really bright stars, it will bleed up and down. That's a normal CCD thing. And when the CCD is really like looking at a bright thing, it will bleed sideways as well. So I've seen those spikes, but not like what you've seen on, uh, on Hubble. But I guess there's different causes for the spikes, but that's all just kind of normal, I expect to see them kind of things. All right, another thing that I've been curious about, and you probably are gonna tell me like there's a very silly answer to this, but I've heard the camera been referred to as Mega Cam, and I've also heard the camera being referred to as Mega Prime, and I know, I know there's got to be some difference between Mega Prime and Mega Cam, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Could you tell me what is the difference between Mega Prime and Mega Cam? 
Sure. And I will add Ultra Cam in there too as a bonus. So Mega Prime is the name of the instrument for like taking images of the sky like this. Mega Cam is the camera that's part of the instrument. And we have Ultra Cam. So Mega Cam is 40 CCDs, but for the longest time, they only used 36 of the CCDs. When they switched to 40, then they started calling it Ultra Cam. So basically, anytime you see cam, like Mega Cam or Ultra Cam, that refers specifically to the camera. Mega Prime is the whole instrument which Mega Cam is part of. Okay, okay. So Mega Prime is like, like, I'm basically like thinking now, okay, like, let's say I've got like the Hubble Space Telescope, and I've got a bunch of different cameras in the Hubble Space Telescope. I've got ACS, I've got WFC, I've got near cam and near spec and all of that stuff. Those are the different cams in there. That's like the equivalent of Mega Cam and Mega Prime or Mega Cam and Ultra Cam. But then I've got like the whole like, oh, by the way, all of this is the camera. That's Mega Prime. So if I have the camera and I use Mega Cam, yeah, it's the Mega Prime instrument using the Mega Cam camera or the Mega Prime instant instrument using the Ultra Cam camera. Is that is that an okay way to think of it? I think so. I think so. Because Mega, Mega Prime is the instrument and they have four other instruments they use. And they take Mega Prime, the instrument, off the telescope and they replace it with a different instrument when it's another instrument's turn. So I think that's that's right. Ultracam is kind of the nickname of when you use Megacam but 40 chips. Right. Instead of instead of 36, you just get that extra that extra four in there and that goes from Mega to Ultra. Yeah, and I don't know the details. I know it's the same camera, but it's they read out those CCDs now. I don't know if they were before and they have now larger filters in the filter wheel so that they can get the full field of view, including uh, with those those four extra chips. You know, I like that, though. I, I like classifying things, and it's nice to know that 36 or under is mega, but 40 or more is ultra. So that's a pretty narrow range for where you transition from mega to ultra. And also, if any of the listeners were wondering, now we know that ultra is more than mega. And then maybe pan is more than ultra because... Pan stars has 60? I don't know. Oh, it, oh, it's gotta. I mean, pan means all. So pan is more than ultra. So this is this is fantastic. Um, we'll just keep going with the superlatives. We don't seem to mind in astronomy. We, we, we'll pull out a new superlative that's more superlative than the last each time. Uh, just wait for extra pan, mega, ultra, whatever comes next. Yes. And... One thing that's I didn't mention, like when you arrange the chips, both for Megacam and for Panstars, there are going to be gaps between the chips. Like you don't get like a, a perfect field of view. There's going to be gaps in there. So um, it looks like graph paper. Now, are these gaps that you fill in by taking multiple exposures that are just offset from one another? Or are these gaps that you leave in there and you just kind of fill them in as best you can, or you don't even worry about it because the area of the gaps is so narrow compared to the area where you actually have the image data that's useful. 
Well, it depends on the PI. Uh, generally, pant stars always, uh, they do something called dithering, which basically means, like you said, they offset it. So they offset the pant stars uh, chips in such a way that after several exposures, it's fully covered. And um, there are dithering patterns within um, when the PIs schedule observations with CFHT to make sure that Megacamp does the same. So it, it just depends on your science and what you're trying to do. Some people will uh, focus in and they know that one chip on Mega Prime is the absolute best and they make sure their object is right in that chip. And then others are like, no, actually, I'm, I'm looking at this galaxy that covers the whole field of view. I will dither things. So it just depends on the science goals of what people do. Now, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but can you give us an example of maybe one or two of your favorite uh, sets of observations that took place at CFHT since you've been working there, where you just looked at that and you were like, you know what, this is really cool, this is really smart, and I am, I'm curious to see what data comes back from this. Um, well, that's a little tricky. I've only been working there for a year, so I would say a lot of the projects you know, they're longer term things. It takes a while for them to write papers and stuff. So I don't really have much to say. Um, because you can't and, scoop an author, can you? No, I'm not going <laughs> to scoop any authors. I'm helping them. I'm, I'm processing the images and flat fielding them and correcting them for them. But I'm not. Yeah, it's not my job to to take anyone's data. It's their data. I just handle All right. it. All right. Well, in that case, uh, from the vault, you got anything at Pan Stars other than obviously Umuamua, but if you wanted to talk about that, we could also. That one was a cool one. Uh, the other cool one was when we were chasing after one of the LIGO events. Um, there, like the ordinary just survey stuff, that's kind of boring, but there have been some pretty cool objects that we've specifically asked for, or, or Ken Chambers has specifically gotten like some director's time to to observe with pan stars and i would have to say like oh is my favorite because i watched it happen with pan stars and then um my husband was working at cfht so i got to watch it happen over on that side too um but the lego events those are always fun to to chase and see in real time like we're just taking the observations and processing the data we're not finding the things in them but they're just exotic and cool yeah, I mean, they they really are. I've also just been blown away at um, at how many objects have not been have now been found, uh, mostly black hole black hole mergers. But we've also definitely seen neutron star neutron star mergers, one of which merged directly into a black hole and one of, one of which didn't. Uh, and we've seen neutron star black hole mergers, I think two or three of those by now. And even though we haven't seen an electromagnetic counterpart from them, I think it's so fascinating to be able to point your telescope to a place in the sky and look and say, hey, are we going to get any extra clues from the universe like this? And the answer is, you know, well, we'll look. And if we get the right kind of event, we will. Like that's... That's a pretty amazing thing that, you know, here it is, it's 2021, and we're alive for this. This is the time we're living in. Yeah, this is this is really cool. And um, when I was a grad student, the topic I was researching was the optical afterglows of gamma ray bursts. So 
this is kind of similar. It's some big bang happens somewhere and you go chasing after it with everything you can think of just to see what you can find out about it. Uh, so this is this is way cooler than when I was a grad student doing gamma ray bursts. These, these LIGO events are just really cool. I agree. So I have I have a question I'd like to ask you, and and please don't take this as like I'm advocating that Heather's job get eliminated. I'm not advocating for that. I think there are a lot of people who will look at what you do and they might dismissively say like, oh, Heather, uh, she just does the job of what someday a, uh, a robot or a piece of artificial intelligence software will be able to do. And I don't think that's quite right. I think that um, there is a good reason we have humans who are instrument support scientists and that we don't just put like AI in the instruments and say like, okay, you support yourself now. Um, but if someone didn't understand that, if someone was like, no, but really like why, why do we need a person to make this go like what what is it that makes a person in this role so indispensable what would you say to someone who asked that so i have two answers for that so the first answer is the day-to-day -day processing of all the exposures if you have a dedicated instrument support scientist they know all the quirks of the instrument they know they have all the calibration data they can process the images. They can tell when something's kind of amiss. They can let the, the, the instrument group know, hey, something's kind of wonky here with the instrument. You should look into it. So I think that's always going to be necessary. Um, as well as having someone dedicated to processing the images means that when a scientist gets their data, you know, they're not trying to reinvent this. It saves them a lot of time, and they know what they've got is, is accurately like processed because Initially, the images are pretty kind of dirty looking, like you have to remove the dark current and the flat fielding effects. And if you're not familiar with that instrument, which a lot of scientists, they apply for telescope time for many telescopes, they may not be, they might, might not have specialized knowledge of this one instrument. So having nice cleaned up images to just hand to them, it's very important. It saves them a lot of time. They know it's been done correctly and they can do their analysis with those cleaned up images. But then the other thing that I would say is one of the things I worked on with PanStars was the database. And building a database is a huge endeavor. It takes, well, it took several of us to do it properly. And it's a huge volume of data. And it's one of those things where it's almost too big of a task for any one person to do for a casual question of, hey, I wonder how many things in the sky vary that we haven't seen before. Like no one's going to answer that just off the top of their head, but if they have a database that they can easily search, they can find it. So having like dedicated scientists who can build the data products and build a database that goes with the data products, it facilitates a lot of science for others. It gives them a database that they can search for and they can mine it in ways I can't even think of. And it just allows others to access both like with PanStars and CFHC, anyone can access these processed images and you don't even have to apply for telescope time. If you come up with clever ideas of how to use the archives, you can do science. And I think that is a very beneficial thing for astronomy. 
You know, let me ask you, I I don't know if this has ever happened to you or anyone you know, but have you ever had a conversation with a researcher, with an observer who said like, hey, here's what I want to measure and here's my plan for how I think we're going to do it. Have you ever known so much uh, about the capabilities of the telescope or the instrument or the camera where you were able to say, you know, if your science goal is the science goal you were after, would you be better served doing it this way and had the person get a better outcome as a result of that? Uh, yes. So with PanStars, they have a public database. Anyone can access it. And I have had colleagues who have... You know, they're working on their Hubble proposal. They want a few of their favorite galaxies and they need more information. And they have pulled up those galaxies in PanStars data and looked at it and said, hey, I have enough information here. I'm not going to apply for Hubble time for these objects. So that's not something I would have thought of. But that data was already there and ready in a way that was accessible to them. And it allowed them to refine the questions that they were wanting to ask and refine their proposal to something probably more interesting and more and a lot stronger because they can say i've already looked at this object in this this way with these things i know these things about it already and then they can they can fine-tune what questions they want to ask about their their object you know that's that's a fascinating point that i hadn't really considered given that it covers so much space on the sky and given that it can go pretty deep and surveys the sky so frequently um is it fair to say that you know there are a lot of studies out there where people are like i want to know more about this object where there's a really good chance that we probably have years of pan stars data on that object do you think that's a thing that many people don't appreciate and do perhaps don't even look at when they're curious about an object yes and not just pan stars um i feel like archival data of any kind is not something that's glamorous people don't generally know about it some of it's quite deep we've had it happen with other telescopes where Someone asked for observing time, but we've already got archival images that would have suited them just fine. This is an interesting problem. Um, it's only like in recent years that people have tried to make archives of like vast quantities of this data. But what I find is it's kind of hard to, first of all, find out about the archives. And second of all, like figure out how to mine them. There are websites here and there where you can like put in coordinates and try to search things. But um, it's... And it's getting a lot better than when I was a, a grad student like a billion years ago. But this is something I think we need to work on, uh, making, making all these archival things more accessible for people to just mine. You know, I, I think that's that's absolutely great because it's just it's just almost like a tragedy to me when someone's like, oh, if only I had this information. And, you know, if you were like, oh, my God, the information is all right over there. If only you had talked to me or if it, like there does, there has to be some easy self-service way where someone can put in like, I don't know, I'm interested in uh 
the faint stars in open cluster Messier 35. And you would be like, oh, yeah, well, here's all the pan stars observations of Messier 35. And here are the CFHT observations of Messier 35. And where you could just be like, I guess, like the ultimate dream of what like Simbad would be that it is not. Yeah, it's like there's no Google for astronomy objects or something like that. that There's a whole bunch of different... Yeah, it would. There's a whole bunch of different services that offer this, but not everything is included. And it's it's still very much a work in progress. And on top of it, it's not exactly exciting. Like, these are the tools that help facilitate science, as I've said. But it's far more interesting to talk about these newly discovered objects, as it should be. But it's it seems harder to get word out of useful tools of how to search archives for, for various things. You know, I, I haven't given you very many open-ended questions, so let me ask you this. Knowing what you know about instruments, databases, and what historically has been done over the past decades with, with these very powerful instruments, um, is there anything that you think about where you're like, you know, there's some really low-hanging fruit here. If someone was interested in solving such and such question, they could just do that by looking at this data that we have. Are there are there any problems like that where it just baffles you why people haven't gone into the PanStars or the CFHT or any order of other sort of similar archival data to say, oh, like I could just be tremendously more informed than I am by doing this? It's a good question, and I'm not really sure. Um, I tend to try to find the low-hanging fruit for myself. So <laughs> one of the big things I worked on with PanStars was mining the medium deep fields within PanStars. There's 10 fields used specifically for searching for supernova, but then once they, once they look for supernova and they find what they want, they throw it away. So um, I used those fields and built a database and mined it. And I basically ran Loam Scargle on every single object that had more than 200 detections just to see what I could filter out and find that were variable stars. That to me seemed like a pretty low hanging fruit. I got distracted, of course, building PanStars database and doing all the papers and stuff. But there's a lot of things to be mined in the data in ways I can't even imagine. I know other people have used the PanStars data, like the whole full set to do photometric redshifts and things like that. So it's it's kind of, it's a hard question. Um, certainly as a scientist or as an astronomer, you're trained to apply for telescope time and you're going to be looking for new and exciting things, but there's a lot of things hidden in archives. Um, I mean, even like uh, some of the more exotic stars that we've seen in recent years, you know, people will look back in archives and see, well, is the star doing crazy things even back then? And that's, that's a really simple question, but I think there's similar questions like that that other astronomers could be asking themselves, well, like, how can, I, how can I use the archives to find out even more information about the thing I'm studying? And it's hard because there's a few portals that you can check things, and it's really hard to find all the different archives of data if there are. There's a lot of archives everywhere. There's not some consolidated it has every single thing in the known universe there 
kind of thing. So it's, it's hard. It's tricky. So I don't really have an answer for <laughs> your open-ended question. Well, one one of the things I was kind of hoping you'd say, so I'll just give you mine because uh, I thought about it and maybe I don't know enough and that's why I think this. But when I think about all the new transient facilities that they have in, in its own way, PanStars is a transient facility. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, the Vera Rubin uh, Observatory will be an even superior one. Um, but... Uh, when I think about it, I'm thinking, you know, there are all these cataclysms that occur. There are tidal disruption events, there are supernova, there are shock breakouts, there are gamma ray bursts, all of these things that occur in the universe that are these bright, luminous, transient events that brighten, reach a peak, and then eventually fall away. Why, what could we learn if we went and identified where these things are in space, what could we learn if we went back and said, hey, before this all happened, what were the progenitors of these objects? And if we have multiple observations of this, because we do this mostly all-sky survey all the time, uh, could we see? Was it being quiescent or was it fluctuating even back then? Did it exhibit any type of variability? Like what I tend to think we assume, and I think we assume erroneously, that, okay, like things are normal, 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 and then boom, and then we watch the boom happen. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good assumption. I think that from what we've seen with variable objects, that these types of instabilities might be somewhat common and that not only with pan stars, but particularly as we get up to observatories that uh, I guess we call them high cadence, but really that just means that take faster observations, uh, we might start to see some variability that at least on the longer term sales we've been looking at hasn't shown up quite yet. Uh, yeah, so I know um, one example is with within the near-Earth objects, if you find a new near-Earth object, like it has, you know, the four points from PanStars and they create a tracklet, then you can have kind of some sort of estimate for the orbit. And I know researchers who go back and look in archival data because they can make pre predictions based on where that object is going to be and look in archival images and see if it was there before. And, you know, it might not have been caught because there was maybe only one exposure that had it or something like that. And that happens all the time with pan stars. Uh, I'm, I think the majority of the near Earth objects with pan stars, someone checks to see if, if that object from the available data and the orbit, if it was observed by pan stars in the past. And there are quite a few uh, objects or quite a few detections within the pan stars archive that clearly match that that sort of thing and adds to the orbit and helps improve it. So I know this happens for near-Earth objects. Uh, for the other types of astronomy, I'm not so sure. I just don't have enough background in it. 
No, that's fair. That's fair. Another object that I'm sure you also don't have enough background in that I'd be curious about is I know we've seen disappearing objects. I know we've seen like, oh, like this looks like it's a 25 solar mass star. And then a few years later, we look back again and we're like, holy crap, it's gone. It's totally gone. Everything else is there. The star is gone. There's no evidence of a supernova or anything. Was this a direct collapse black hole? And anytime I think we find that, I think like, wow, like, can we can we pan stars that? Because, you know, when when you pan stars something, I feel like you get this repeated set of observations over potentially long periods of time. If there's a sudden change, um, you know, yeah, it's possible that a sudden change really did just happen all at once. But often sudden changes are preceded by periods of variability. And I think knowing if any of that happened with these objects would be a tremendous source of value. I love that you use pan stars as a verb, first of all. <laughs> I do think a lot of people do check these things. Um, you know, pan stars isn't a perfect data set. There's going to be gaps between the chips and the chips themselves have 64 cells and there's gaps between those. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why something might not be there. But if it's something that's visible and you should expect to see it and the, the pixels are there and you don't see something, that that's interesting. And I do hope people in the astronomy community are using pan stars to check and see what was there before for their favorite objects. I do think it's a useful tool and I, I, I hope they do that. I hope so too. I hope so too. Now, looking ahead, you know, you've worked on pan stars, you're working at CFHT now. Um, when the astronomy, at least in terms of ground-based astronomy, when I look ahead, I see uh, I see the Vera Rubin Observatory with the Large Survey Synoptic Telescope um, or large synoptic survey telescope there, um, I see that as like ultimate pan stars. This is basically saying like, okay, we're going to take the concept for pan stars, we're going to put it in a better location, we're going to make it bigger, we're going to make it faster, we're going to make it more powerful, bigger camera, more data, we're going to get the whole sky, we're going to get it faster, um, and we're going to get it all the time, more wavelength bands, all that good stuff. Um, that's the sort of thing where I think, you know, when people start talking about that, does your mouth hang open and does drool start coming out of one side? And do you start thinking like, oh, okay, well, I did get to work on pan stars and that was cool. But if I had the opportunity to work at an observatory like this, imagine all the cool science I would get to, um, what's the word, facilitate. Funny enough, I'm not so excited about that stuff. I think it's because I was working on pan stars when they were building pan stars 2, when they were building the software for pan stars 1 before the pan stars 1 survey started. And it's a lot of work. So I, I respect anyone who wants to work on that. It's a lot of work. I think I've done it once. I'm done. <laughs> you uh, you got you got Danny Glover from Lethal Weapon, huh? You you're just getting too old for this. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if I were to work on a bigger project, that's the same kind of thing. It's just a bigger project. That's the same kind of thing. And I I don't know. I much prefer to switch it up and do something different. So I've worked on 
telescopes in various stages of construction. So <laughs> having worked on PanStars in the early days when they were building the pipeline and all of that stuff, I've done it. It's a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of work for the, the people working on uh, LSST and other things like that. And I, you know what? It's fine. They can work on that. I've, I've, I've done my part with PanStars. You know, but I, I actually like that a lot. You know, I think there's this expectation that we unfairly put on people where we expect, you know, oh, well, you work on this, you're going to be interested in this. Or like, oh, you work in this field, of course, you're going to think this. Um, over the past few, I, I won't just say years, but this has come out a lot recently for me, really over the past couple of months or so, um, I've been hearing from people in the field about the importance of having more diversity. And that means, you know, yes, we want LGBTQ plus diversity. Yes, we want more women. Yes, we want more people of color. Um, but they go beyond that too. And they say, we want people of various ages. We want people of various experience levels. We want people who've come from different backgrounds. And we want people with different sets of thoughts and interests, even in the field themselves. And to hear you surprise me by talking about how, mm, no thanks, I don't think I'd like to work on Vera Rubin LSST Observatory very much. Uh, thank you, I'm much happier where I am now. That, that just sort of jumped up in my head as, hmm, you know, a lot of the people I know who are excited about the Rubin Observatory are thinking like this is where all the good stuff happens and I'm really glad that not everyone feels that way that like no there's good stuff happening in other places um do you have some thoughts on that that you'd like to share with us uh sure so it's first of all nothing against the Vera Rubin uh LSST stuff nothing against that it's great it's just in my mind it's the same kind of problem again. And I was just thinking about this the other day. So when I was 19, I got a free dead car and I rebuilt it and it ran and I was happy with it. And I had to rebuild the carburetor. And then, I don't know, sometime later, because I'm not good at rebuilding a car, the carburetor needed to be rebuilt again. And I was just so over it. I was like, no, I've already fixed this once. Why do I have to fix it again? So. I'm definitely the kind of person who likes to do new and shiny and interesting things. And I kind of doing the same things right now, but not quite. I'm an instrument scientist and I can work. I'm primarily working on mega prime, but I can work on the other instruments. And so there's growth there for me. Like I can work on Spiru. I can work on Citel. I can, you know, spit on, there's four other instruments that I can help on if I want. And it's not just the same thing that I've been doing for the past decade. And that's exciting to me. And with CFHT, you know, they have this uh, MSE project that they're working on, which is the next thing after CFHT. And that's like a decade away or something like that. But, you know, it's new and exciting for me. It's, I guess, I guess my take on this is, is I've spent a decade working on wide field of view imagers. And I'm sure I would be great working on other wide field of view imagers doing the same thing. But I'm the kind of person who needs variety. So, uh, and I've, I've done that with my own science. I've jumped around, I've worked on gamma ray bursts, I've worked on near earth objects, I've worked on like things in between there with supernova, I've just jumped around a whole lot. So I guess it shouldn't surprise you 
that I want to jump around on the instruments that I work on too. I just, I'm not going to be that person that specializes in the one thing and works on that thing for the rest of my life. I'm not that person. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I feel like in our field, uh, there's a lot of pressure to do that. I, I got as my, uh, as advice when I was a grad student, I got advice to do exactly that. It was, oh, you know, find that one corner of grad school, find that one corner of a field that you can do that no one else has done in depth, and you do it in depth, and you become the world expert on it, and that's your bread and butter, and everyone will come to you for that sort of thing, and that's how you'll find your niche in academia. And I was like, well, yeah, but like, what if that's not the stuff you like doing? Like, what if you could do that, but that's not what you'd want to do? And the prof I said that to, like, looked at me like I was crazy. Like, yeah, but why Why would you risk your career when I'm telling you, like, this is how you could have a career? And it's, you know, I'm glad to hear that uh, that, that is not the only way to have a successful career in this field because because people shouldn't be pigeonholed into doing something they don't want to do because they feel it's their only option to be successful. And I'm pleased to hear it's not your only option to be successful. Yeah. No, I don't I don't feel it is and I mean the one thing that struck me was when I started working on variable stars, I approached it in a much different way than I would have if I had started working on it as a grad student. So as a postdoc, um, I had very, you know, strong ideas about things. So I, I, it's like I came into variable stars as an expert, like in another field of astronomy, and you just see things differently when you do that. You come up with like good ideas that no one else has tried when you, when you're the newcomer, but you're an expert in another field, but you're the newcomer in this field, you bring in fresh ideas that, you think might work, but maybe no one else has tried. And so I, I do think like mixing it up and working on different things and trying different things, I think that's just really beneficial. <laughs> no, but I do like this idea a lot that you can say, look, you know, we're all going to approach these problems with our own unique toolkit. And if you and me and everyone else got the exact same standardized training as everyone else, uh, we're not going to have something new and novel to offer. But if I learned a different set of math and you learned a set of chemistry and someone else learned a set of electronics and someone else uh, spent more time doing, you know, uh, signal processing, and we all came together to solve the same problem, boy, with four vastly different toolkits, we might have a much better shot of actually making some interesting headway on this problem than if all four of us had the exact same education as me. Because without that diversity of background and experience, you don't get the same potential for creativity in your problem solving. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, yeah, I guess my inclination is I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. But by choosing to do that, I do bring my own special flavor of diversity into the new groups I work with. I do think that's important because you come up with unique and creative ideas when you have different backgrounds working on the same project. Yeah, honestly, I think as long as you're not insecure enough, and not you in particular, but as long as one isn't insecure enough that you don't start like pointing to the other people without the same background as you and looking at the down on them as though they're inferior because of that, 
Um, I think uh, I think as soon as you adopt that abundance mindset, you start seeing like, wow, like these people who did all of these other things, these other things that they did really pay off. It really pays off in some ways that maybe it wouldn't have ever paid off for me if I was left there to think of it because I didn't get to have those experiences for myself. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, Heather, this has been a really fascinating and informative discussions on instruments, astronomy, and uh, mega cameras, among other things. Uh, Before we part ways, I look at where you are right now as a successful person in your field who has faced obstacles and in some ways taken a slightly non-traditional path. Um, But I look at where you are now, and I see you happy and successful, and I wonder if you could go back to yourself, if you could take this version of Heather and go back to the more junior version of yourself, 5, 10, even 15 years ago, and say, Heather, I have some advice for you. What would you tell your young self? Okay, that's an excellent excellent prompt, Um, in part because in my mind... I don't really feel that successful. And the reason I don't is because, and I'm sure you have heard this yourself, you kind of get told, unless you're, you know, on the track to become a tenured astronomer, you're not successful. And I'm not. I'm not a tenured astronomer, and I don't really think I want that. I'm quite happy um, helping on the service side of astronomy, building databases, helping make things go. I like that. And so... You're right. It's non-traditional. And I think until you mentioned that I was successful, I don't think I'd really seen myself as successful, <laughs> which oh. sounds really, really terrible. So um, 15 years ago, me was in grad school with the idea that I was going to keep doing science as long as it was still fun. So I would say that was pretty good advice that I thought of myself 15 years ago. And You know, I've never really had this great idea in my head of this plan of what I was going to accomplish by X number of years or whatever like that. I was just like, I'm going to do things as long as I think it's fun. And for the most part, what I've done with PanStars has been fun. What I've done with CFHT has been fun. Sure, there's not fun parts of it, but there's a lot of not fun parts of life in general. But overall, I think it's been a lot of fun. And I think that's why I'm still in astronomy is there's some part of it that's still a lot of fun for me. And I keep finding fun things to do. You know, that's great because uh, I think a lot of us when we're younger, we have ideas of how our careers are going to go and what our lives doing those careers are going to be like. Uh, And I think uh, there's plenty of potential for rude awakenings along those journeys. And I'm glad to see that your ideas of what an astronomer does or what I can do to be valuable in this field, that that has evolved with time. And I think if more people were aware of the fact that, you know, this idea you have of success in your head, uh, it should be malleable. I think a lot more people would be happy with where they are rather than being upset about where they're not. For instance, uh, 15 years ago when I was in grad school, I couldn't imagine 
that I would have become a full-time science communicator with my own banner of Starts With a Bang, doing podcasts and telling stories and writing books and looking ahead to making videos because a job like that didn't exist. And yet here we are in the world 15 years later and I'm making a go of it doing exactly that. I think that you know, the idea that there's only one way to be successful is something that, that we all have to fight against. Heather, I want to thank you for joining me for a wonderful edition of this podcast. I hope all of you out there, the next time you hear anything from PanStars or the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, you think about Heather and all the fantastic behind-the-scenes people working hard to make all of this science possible. And I would like to thank each of you out there making the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. A special shout-out goes to everyone who contributes to our Patreon at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Brian Kinsella, Chad Marla, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Chikutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Andy and Wall, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Judith Del Mar, Marcelo Barnabar, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafal Wojcik, Sean Foley, Vlad Fashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Mike Mays, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Talon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngco S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts with a Bang.